Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. I thought today I was going to continue with my four-part or a portion of my four parts of how we get to our, what we consider our ideal diet for humans. You know, we did the comparative anatomy, that is we compared our guts, that is our, our, our GI, and the percentage was how, how much was of that whole GI system for 70 different mammals were large intestine, small intestine, stomach, and esophagus. We made that comparison. Anyway, before I get into spoiling it for upcoming episodes, I'm not going to do that. Uh, something caught my attention today, and I, I I sort of feel that I have to cover this. And so this is about dairy. It's it's one of the sort of my my perennial topics, and it wasn't because it was scheduled at all at all. It's because I um, saw on YouTube somebody who I've attended a number of their presentations at the various low, low carb and metabolic therapy conferences, and um, uh, this person is a bariatric surgeon and a great guy, but he totally endorsed dairy saying, you know, there's a big row in the low carb keto world, a uh, low carb world and about dairy. And so, um, I completely disagree with his, I agree with his analysis, but his analysis didn't cover the whole picture. And so by the information he presented, his conclusion was for the most part, correct. And I'll review that for you in a second. And I'll leave, leave a link in the show notes as well. So, But I don't want to regurgitate everything he went over. But he discussed it primarily from the perspective of carbs in, in whole milk. And uh, then dismissing uh, yogurt in the United States as a processed food, which I agree with. So it wasn't anything I disagreed with. But I think to, to omit such a large portion and uh, is irresponsible. And by being irresponsible, I think you're potentially dangerous. So boy, those are incredible accusations, aren't they? Well, let me back up from where I'm coming from. So I'm an naturopathic doctor, practiced clinically for 16 years, had our own practice. And do you know how many patients you see? Do you know how many walls of charts you have? You have walls and walls and walls of charts to the point that the weight of the charts themselves start... Uh, stressing the floor. So there's a lot there. So if you were to 
pick a common thread and go from folder to folder to folder, from chart to chart to chart, that one of those common threads, and there probably would not be 100%, but one of those common threads way up into the 90% of nearly all the uh, files, we'll call them, is dairy, a problem with dairy. And so to approach the issue of dairy strictly from an academic perspective and not an experiential perspective, I think is void. I think it's void, it's narrow, and it smells of agenda. And this isn't an accusation about this person, but that's usually how people, if you go on YouTube and listen to the presentations about various perspectives on dairy, oh, dairy is great. You know, it's the, it's the, all mammals have dairy. Of course, all mammals have dairy and you begin there and therefore, why shouldn't we have dairy? Well, that's such a superficial way and a very misguided way. And you're probably endorsed by the, the dairy council, whatever the dairy lobby. And I think it's incomplete. So um, we're no longer children. I, I believe anybody who's listening to this has the intelligence of an adult. And therefore, here's how we did it. We kept it pretty simple. When you talk to a patient and you do their history and you see their labs and you do your physical exams, et cetera, et cetera, which is responsible medicine, that you have to make your recommendations real. You don't give them a dissertation on why they shouldn't have dairy. You say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to remove all dairy from your diet for two months. So two months is 60 days. 60 days is about eight weeks. You know, you really define it and try to remove every possible equivocation, every possible point that they might not understand what you're saying. So you say, this is it, but I will help you. We don't start doing it tomorrow. I will help you replace, you know, so now you have their whole diet diary, right? You have their whole diet diary. And you see where the different kinds of dairy. So we replace it with things that they might find acceptable. But we get all dairy out of their diet. And we tell them about reading labels. So it's not going to come in under the guise of a label. So there's a little education there. But anyway, we get to the point, usually at about four weeks after this particular conversation, does the clock start? So the clock then starts for two months, done. And then we reintroduce the forms of dairy that they had previously in their diet. We find out, did the menstrual pains come back? Did the headaches come back? Did the insomnia come back? Did that joint pain come back? Did the anger come back? Did the um, fatigue come back? Did the, you name it. We bring it back to their chief complaint. The chief complaint is the reason they came through the door to see you, the doctor, in the first place, to see if you, the doctor, in the first place, could help them get rid of their chief complaint. I'm, I'm speaking in such a sort of hyper-simplistic sort of, not condescending way because to avoid speaking experientially and saying, this is what I've seen. So this obviously is not labs. I mean, I have their labs, but back in those days of those 16 years, uh, I did not take things like uh, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. I took CRP, which is an inflammatory marker, but you know, I, I, I take far more labs now than I did then. And now through our program, which is really nice about not having to meet the approval of your insurance is that I can order the labs that are most relevant to people coming in to see me. And it sets a whole different tone. Whereas before, just to add a sentence or two more to explain that is when people came in, you, and there's usually five or six different insurance companies and a lot of insurance companies covered very little. In fact, I remember my first uh, three or four years C-reactive protein, what they call 
high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, was being challenged and not covered by insurance. And so there had to be four years of protest to finally get that covered. So everything was a small battle. And in addition, sometimes six months to a year to a year and a half afterwards, an insurance company would say, oh, you did this lab and it's not covered for that particular diagnosis code that you used on that patient. So both doctor and patients were educated by the insurance companies to say, I don't think I do that lab. That lab's a little bit too much cost for the insurance company to bear. So if it was something that the doctor knew a lot about me and felt strong, I'd have to say, well, you're going to have to pay for, pay for it out of pocket. And then the onus was on me or whatever help we had in our practice to go look up the cost on that person's insurance company. So it was a headache, a complete headache. I'm talking about a headache that doesn't get better when you take away the dairy. Okay. So um, anyway, that's the background. But anyways, be that as it may, there is just a, a hell of a lot of volume of data of people getting better to the point that I thought, you know, if you did nothing but randomly go down the street and tell people to don't have dairy for two months, their life would change for the better. And you would be probably within 80 to 99% correct with all those people. I mean, huge if they did that. You know, that's, that's what, so you're, you're removing the biggest obstacle to cure out of that person's life. But when I'll go into some of the details, you know, that begged the question and that begs the question as an ongoing question. Why is that the case? How, how can, how can you remove something and it gets to be so much better when yet uh, we're all mammals? They were all mammals, right? So we, we can all share this, but um, cow milk is not human milk. And even if you could have human milk for your whole life, should you, you know, can you, can you digest it? Or does something change that only up until the first four years of your life, you're most adept at having that. And obviously there's reasons for having breast milk when you grow up. So this isn't against breast milk, all right? It's cow milk products. All products that come from cow milk, dairy is what I'm talking about. Okay. So whether it's the United States or some other Western country, um, clearly milk in this country is very adulterated. So it's pasteurized and homogenized. Yes, you can get raw milk in certain states. But I'm not in one of those states, and I don't know that many people who have access to raw milk. So I can't speak to that. My feelings are, but I know there's also some been hellacious outcomes with commercial production of raw milk that didn't go well for some people. And, but you could say it went well for a lot of other people. So yeah, there's a variable there uh, really has to be taken care of correctly. But my guess is if you really had it down to a hygienic system and removed the factor of worrying about bacterial infection and things that you can pick up or that uh, cows could pick up. And we're speaking of now grass fed cows and not ones that have been injected with a lot of growth hormones and so on those cows, that milk, that process would probably be pretty good. But I don't have the data. I certainly have no firsthand experience on that. I had no patients that had firsthand experience on that. So it's all very hypothetical, but my guess is off and away in that direction, you'd probably have much better outcomes. So back to the commercialization of dairy is that, first of all, you really start to have to talk about 
how is that cow raised? Was it really just grass, grass pasteurized? Or was it grass pasteurized plus growth hormones plus, um, you know, a lot of antibiotics? And so these are the variables that start to then make that nice, possible, healthy dairy become less healthy for you. And on and on and on it goes. I'm not saying there's not a place for antibiotics if your cow, lactating cow, is sick. Obviously, you do what you can. But those residuals gets passed down into the milk to the people that are consuming it. So that's it. So in terms of, it's well known that growth hormones are used not across the board. Supposedly, it's 50%, 60%. I don't know. You know, uh, am, am I going to go and check all the farms? No. So on that... I'm relying on it's academic. But what I can tell you is now when I start taking, people come into our program, which is mostly about being overweight, and usually it's diabetes, prediabetes, and or whatever else, that I look at their IGF-1, which is insulin growth factor one, and without knowing that person's diet, though I get to know their diet very, very well, uh, without knowing that person's diet, I can spot who is the highest consumer of dairy. So that's ice cream, cheese, cottage cheese, cream cheese, whole milk, skim milk, you name it. It's anything from milk. Most likely it was ice cream and cheese. And then guiltily, some form of yogurt. You can tell. So that clearly is is the case. And did you know that dairy, cow dairy, IGF, is exactly identically bioidentical to the human IGF? So when you start eating another mammal's IGF, it creates further production of your own. It cranks up your own IGF. So now we have an insulin-like growth factor, call it, which is what they call a proxy for, for growth hormone. It's a driver. So that's why the guys in the gym take whey protein and so on, because it's a, a pseudo growth hormone. It, it, it is, does make it say uh, anabolic is the word. Um, and it makes your muscles grow. It makes other things grow. And not everything needs to grow that much. And it causes uh, whatever in inflammation grows. Uh, it, if people have cancer, it makes their cancer worse. So that grows. So there's some discretion there. It's not black or white. But I'm saying that I can recognize this in labs. And my suspicions are that the dairy they're having was probably from a cow that was given uh, growth hormones and uh, perhaps even a fair amount of estrogen. Estrogen is harder to track. So if somebody drinks milk, cheese, whatever, um, from a cow that was still lactating, it's going to have high estrogen amount. So how can you see that in a human? It's hard unless you uh, take that blood test, that lab, you know, within so many hours of consuming the milk. So it's really, that's not where I go. When I look at hormones, um, I look at at urine and saliva, and that's sequential. I've talked about that before. So it's fascinating. So it allows me to look more thoroughly at, does somebody have high estrogen or high or low or whatever it is, so on and so forth. So anyway, I want to do this presentation that I saw was that, you know, there's not a problem with dairy. People are so worried about the carbs in dairy. It's like the carbs in dairy were not the thing that I would be worried about, actually. You know, it's like, okay, there's carbs in dairy. It's like, a, I'm not trying to make the world carbohydrate phobic. No, not at all. And yes, if you take the uh, the irony about um, where there's obesity 
epidemic came from and we think it was a started we, by the graphs we've been keeping since the 50s it looks like it really cranked up in the mid 70s with you know, the dietary guidelines but along those things when you start taking taking the fat out of the milk what are you left with it are the carbs you know the lactose and so therefore it ends up being a high carb product so when you have whole milk which includes a lot of fat a lot of saturated fats that that balances it and so it doesn't really affect your blood sugar so if you're having whole milk and you're looking at your cgm you have a continuous glucose monitor on i doubt you would th see an increase in any blood sugar so that's whole milk as that's the fat modifies the response to the carbs but if you were to have skim milk you would probably see your cgm go nuts but that's just a carb story that's kind of like a i won't say it's irrelevant it's just not that relevant and when people go they have a problem with milk because they're lactose intolerance first there's very few people and this is mentioned in his presentation very few people that are uh, lactose intolerant and and that's true and uh it's just not that big of a deal it's the other stuff in milk that some of it's artificially cranked up you know so now uh in the last five years it, it's now allowed that you can milk lactating pregnant sorry let's say pregnant lactating cows and so if they're pregnant they have a very high estrogen a lot of that estrogen goes into their milk that goes into to your ice cream yogurt cottage cheese etc butter products and so that's going to be a problem for you so um since it's it's just allowed you don't know where that came from and now that milk is sort of aggregated together only so many cows on the farm that they've collected the milk from etc cetera, etc cetera. okay so there's that and so the, the the real issues behind dairy do have to do with casein so it's the stuff you gave the cow it's how it was processed which was pasteurized which means they put it at a very high temperature for a very short period of time with the idea being they're going to kill the bacteria therefore you have a bacteria free um, and you have a safer product i'm not even going to weigh in on that it there's good logic to it i'm not against it i'm not for it there again i think that probably raw is the best but pasteurized is not the big the big deal but they're also say that you've um, destroyed a lot of great proteins a lot of uh, digested enzymes in milk so it's not just about the bacteria it does have its long-term effects some yes detrimental to the quality of the product and yes some beneficial if you're looking from the perspective of killing bacteria and over potential viruses okay so the other is uh, homogenization homogenization has been at least per my reading associated with type 1 diabetes um, not across the board but it's one of the things homogenization is kind of the pulverizing the, the really you know uh, whipping up of the of the milk and so it makes these fat solids they call it that apparently on the mechanical side is a problem to start with okay so what else why why would you know what else is in milk that's a problem i think the story primarily is no let me, let me go back there's there's plenty of good things there's vitamins and nutrients yes we know that of course it was meant to bring up a cow just like breast milk was meant to bring up a human it better have some good stuff in it and it has ketones in it it has a fair amount of uh, glucose in it it has and other kinds of uh, sugars as well hence lactose which is galactose and glucose um it has 
supposedly some vitamin D, not much. Now it's added. So let's subtract the vitamin D. It's not a real world. People add it. So people have vitamin D. Um, but there's other nutrients in it, fat-soluble nutrients. So that's a good thing. All right. So the bad thing is the casein. And, you know, I've talked about this before, and it is very fascinating, by the way. It's fascinating, but it's problematic for humans. I mean, wicked problematic for humans. And I, and I the most important point about this is saying, no, I took it away from a gazillion people. They got better, brought it back in, staggered with, you know, over the next couple of weeks or reintroducing it to the things that they had previously, you know, sources of dairy that they had in their diet, and they came back to how they were before. So away they're better, giving it back, they get worse, they're back to the way they were before. Hmm, what do you think would be the problem there? You know, so you can't exactly say, no, it's the casein. No, it's the estrogen. No, it's, you know, it's all of those maybe, yes. But the casein is the bigger story. And cows primarily come down into... You know, every mammal has a unique form of casein in their in their milk. And it serves a lot of really interesting reasons. And so it's a survival thing that young mammals need to have. And if they didn't have this casein, I doubt that they would survive. So you'd say, well, that's a good thing. You know, Carl, Dr. Carl, you're saying good things about casein. Yeah, I am. But if you're listening to this, you're an adult. Remember we talked about that adult just about 20 minutes ago? Well, if you're an adult, you don't need the casein. I don't care whether you're working out or not. You don't need the casein. Okay. So what's this with the casein? Well, the neat thing, the functions of the casein is that uh, there's an, there's uh, was identified called casomorphines. It came out of the 70s and 80s. And uh, caso as in casein and morphine, morphine morphine as in morphine, as in heroin, as in narcotic. So you have a narcotic effect from dairy, specifically from the casein. And some caseins have a much more narcotic effect than other kind of caseins. So what do we mean by narcotic effect? It means it actually hits the receptors, the um, morphine, morphine receptors. So just like morphine does, and there's a, a number of these receptors, different, slightly different, um, so it hits these. And so they get a little sort of buzzy, a little anesthetized, a little feeling pretty good. But when they get used to having this, they get addicted. So yeah, you get addicted to casein. So now you please look back to all those addiction podcasts I've had. Now you have the whole addiction thing, the dopamine and the serotonin and so on and so forth. Now there's a whole neuroendocrine pathway opened up, activated, getting stronger, and they want their casein. So that keeps the kid coming back to his mother to breastfeed. It keeps the calf coming back to its mother to breastfeed. It keeps the... So if you if you were to line up, and this is an imaginary experiment that somebody ought to do, they ought to compare the casein from small mammals to large mammals. Small mammals, let's start with mice, and then rats, and then dogs and cats, and move on up. And so what would be the biggest? The biggest and the easiest would be the elephant, right? Unless you're going to go to the blue whale, they're kind of hard to come by. Certainly hard to get any any uh, blue whale milk. But if you were to line these up and simply look at the casein, we're talking about molecular structure now, you would have an evolution of that molecular structure and it would progressively become more and more and more and more and more and more narcotic-like in its action. So... Some of you are probably thinking facetiously, 
where can I get my hands on some elephant milk? Well, I, I, I tell you, I don't know about elephant milk. And don't you think it would be a great experiment? I do. I think it would be genius. And that would like put this whole casein story to bed. Um, hard to find funding on things like that. But there are what has become very popular in the parents of Spectrum kids. So that's autism. That's Asperger's. That's dyslexia, like myself. That they look at, there's things called yak milk. Moose milk, moose milk is very popular, that actually have very beneficial effects. How would be that be different? I haven't really looked it up enough, but um, there is a market for those particular different kinds of milk. So I can only imagine, you know, first kid that gets to have his hands on elephant milk, he won't let go, let me tell you. So um, there's benefits there. But however, in humans that use cows as their source for dairy products and all the derivative products of that. They come from primarily two different families, two different mutations, two different molecular structures of casein. And we're calling one A1 casein and A2 casein. So there's cows that produce a certain kind of casein and they're the A1 family. And then there's the A2 family. And then you even have, we all know we have two sets of genes so if you have the same gene on both, you're homozygous. And if you have it on one, you're heterozygous. And so for all cows that are homozygous for the A2, they find that humans have far less um, respiratory problems. They have far less um, inflammatory problems, have far less uh, neuroendocrine problems. So that's A2. And, and to the point that, and this all came out of Australia and New Zealand, and uh, it's a really interesting topic as well. And um, if you want to read about this, there's a book called The Devils, The Devils in the Milk, and it's the differentiation between A1 milk, that is milk that came from cows that are A1, and cat milk that came from cows that are A A2. Now remember, they have to be homozygous. And so there's a company that's now, I think, almost global, is called A2 milk and then subsequent derivative products. But the problem is in the A2, they're not all from homozygous cows of A2, so it's a little bit iffy. But you got the theory, and the theory is pretty interesting. And there was at a point that um, supposedly in, in Australia, all the milk that was available in the grocery stores was A2 milk. Um, other, there are other companies that do this A2 milk, casein milk as well. They don't have to be just called that. So there's that. It's a real thing. And uh, it's a real book. It came out in, I think, 2009. Uh, it certainly oriented me towards uh, changing out the dairy for people who are really, for my patients, that were really dairy needy. Uh, A2 milk wasn't around. A2 milk is around now. And so what I would do, I would encourage them to go to sheep's milk and goat's milk for cheese and whatever. Obviously, well, now you can get goat's milk ice cream, but um, and I don't have a brand name for you. Um, but back then you couldn't. So the best they could do is swap over to and sheep and goat or A1. Sorry, sheep and goat or A2, which is the good thing. And um, and I can tell you the cows that are A2. Let me see. I always get the Guernseys and the Jerseys mixed up. And it's kind of interesting when you think of the two islands that are just off of France, between France and England, that that's the center of Western cattle. 
came from these islands, Guernseys and Jerseys. And it's a mutation. So there's a point in which uh, the the A1 mutated and became a worse source of milk. And another example about the A1 and A2 is the difference between heart disease and diabetes uh, in Finland and Iceland. And Finland that has the A1 and Iceland that has the A2 cows. And so it's a big difference. So I think to get back to why I'm talking about this now is that I think it is a really big deal. So when people go, oh, you know, don't worry about the carbs in, in milk. I would agree with that. I wouldn't worry about that's not the issue that I would have or anybody really has for dairy. It's the casein primarily. And it's also the, the commercial production of dairy in this country, this country being the U.S., which is the worst possible. I think it's better in Canada. And by the way, most dairy farms now, especially in Canada, are switching over to goat milk uh, for probably that that very reason. So uh, it's a tough time to be a cow, a bovine uh, dairy farmer, as opposed to a goat uh, dairy farmer. Interesting that, eh? So that's the bigger issue. I just want to make sure that I've hit most of my points. I mean, I have pages of research. I find it's a fascinating talk. So the the idea is there's a function for casein in every mammal's life. And our casein serves us well. Somebody else's casein, i.e. cows, does not serve us well. And it's bad and it's bad. It's just less bad if it's an A2 casein from A2 cows. And so that's how that goes. So there is no resolving any dairy conundrum uh, it says, the, the name of the talk was Resolving the Dairy Conundrum, Keto Rules for Dairy. You know, pff, oh, please, it's just too simplified and it's not the complete story. Um, and it's the number one thing in 16 years, I would say, you know, somebody said, looking back, what is the number one thing that most people can do to improve their lives immediately? Most people probably say, well, exercise more, get better night's sleep. Well, yeah, those are, those are good. But I guarantee you, if you say that, you're going to get almost zero change in most people's lives if you have them take away the dairy for two months and then bring it back in in two months, you're going to see a remarkable change. You're going to have a story and they're going to not like the reintroduction of dairy at all. They're going to love the ice cream that they thought they missed and when they bring it back, and by the way, you're dealing with a drug. I told you it was a narcotic. I told you it was a case of morphine. So it's just like a drug. And so you have to be careful. You have to treat it like a drug. It, that drug aspect of dairy serves the child well to come back to mom to get fed again. Otherwise, it would starve. Once these these um, enzymes it gets more difficult to digest milk, which is a good thing, because then it has to wean itself away from that drug. So keep the drug out of your system, as far as I'm concerned. So there are exceptions in the world, by the way, of uh, supposedly the Maasai um warriors and the Maasai people in general in Africa, in Kenya area, do have, they have nothing but meat and they have milk. So I don't know what kind of cows they take it from, but uh, supposedly they don't have a problem. And I would say they have raw milk. So there's that whole raw milk aspect. And for my guessing, it might be an A1 cattle. And that would be another thing. The, um, the Brahma bulls, by the way. So if you were going to Costa Rica, um, you see a lot of Brahma bulls, and the reason Brahma bulls are in hot countries like India, that 
uh, they're sacred there, I know, but not for everybody, not all over India. That if you were to go to India in hot countries, uh, supposedly that kind of cattle can can tolerate much higher heat. That's why they're used um, for that. And um, I've only had some meat from Brahma bulls, and it was okay. I mean, a lot has to do with how it's cured and cut and so on and so forth. So I would say it was uh, average. But what 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 was extraordinary is in Costa Rica, we went up to 11,000 feet and they had pastures at 11,000 feet that were, you know, these flat areas that uh, grew grass as far as you could see, but they had grown on former lava beds, you know, and so they had really, really, really rich soil, the green, green grass. Um, And so consequently, the butter that came from there was almost an orange butter. And so that orange butter uh, was, spoke to the source of their milk which was the carotenoids, uh, lutein specifically, that came from the grass. And uh, it was great. It was, at first it was like, did they add food coloring to this? No, they didn't. It's because it was all the dairy farming, most of the dairy farming in Costa Rica happens at very high altitudes. And so um, I guess you could speak into hemoglobin and a lot of other things, but primarily I would say it's the richness of the soil and the grass that they ate and so on and so forth. Okay, I am going to close there, and you probably had more than an earful on dairy. See what else I can say about dairy. Dairy is associated with type 1 diabetes, and I believe that directly has to do with the homogenization process and the casein, the the cow casein, probably both 1 and 2. Off the top of my head, I do not know if A1 is worse. My guess is it would probably be worse. What do I have here? Some of the papers in front of me. Variations in consumption of cow milk proteins and lower incidence of type 1 diabetes in Iceland over the other four, kind of what I just told you. Um, Ischemic heart disease, type 1 diabetes and cow milk A1 beta casein. Well, there you go. A1 beta casein, protein, and other environmental predisposing factors for type 1 diabetes. Effects of milk containing A2 beta casein versus milk containing both A1 and A2 beta casein, right? So that's homozygous versus heterozygous. Proteins and gastrointestinal physiology symptoms of discomfort and cognitive behavior of people with self-reported intolerance to traditional cow's milk. Now that's one long title for a research paper. And the conclusion is, conclusion of that real long title is consumption of milk containing A1 beta casein. So when I called it casein before, I should have said it was beta casein. Does it really matter? A1 beta casein was associated with increased gastrointestinal inflammation, worsening of um, PD3 symptoms, going to that some other time, delayed transit, in other words, constipation, increased cognitive processing speed, or decrease, sorry, decreased cognitive processing speed and accuracy. And there you go. So to start with, so it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, so, but there's a logic on top of all this. They're not our species. Casein is our narcotic and we crave it. We love it. We want more of it. Who doesn't love cheese? You know, I can, you know, I hope I get a chance in my life to fall into a vat of camembert cheese and have to eat my way out. I think, you know, some of the French cheeses, the wet cheeses, the soft cheeses, are incredibly delicious. I don't have them that much. We go 
pretty much a year with a certain moments like a birthday or maybe a, a Christmas holiday or something to have some select dairy. And um, I certainly wouldn't waste it on some sort of processed cheddar cheese. I, I, I'd look for a better kind of cheddar cheese. I, you know, anyway, you got my point. So I love it like anybody else does, but I know what it does to me. So I just push it away. And that's the way it goes. So I could have gone more into labs. I think that's a little bit redundant and you get the big picture. If anybody wants more information on, you know, what have I seen on labs? And I'll probably bring this up when we get onto YouTube to go over other people's labs anonymously. So you get to see what I see. It's a real thing. So when people go, well, you know, dairy's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Carbs aren't going to be, yeah, I wouldn't worry about the carbs, but that's not the issue about dairy. So I find it is an irresponsible presentation and I think it can lead people in a very wrong direction. And I'm hoping that there's no um, conflict of interest when one has an opinion like that. It just is, it's just, I can't tolerate it. After my experience, I can't tolerate it. It's not just a week. It's not just my personal experience. It's 16 years of seeing the improvement. So I am ironclad in that. Nobody can talk me out of it. Now that I have labs behind it to sort of say, see, this is what's happening. I feel a little more confident in that particular position. Okay, this is the end of today's presentation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too impassioned and I hope it didn't seem that I was too judgmental of anybody else. But somebody has to sort of say, I disagree. I very much disagree with that perspective. Okay, till next time. If you have any questions, send them in. I know I'm behind, but I will get to them. Good questions come to the top, like cream rises to the top. How's that for an analogy? And I'll answer them. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I just wanted to encourage you to send in your questions to drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Many of you have, and so what I've done with these questions that I've gotten back to most of the people I email, but some of the questions that were so good, and if they were overlapping to other questions, I would combine them and try to put that into the topic of a podcast, either via one of the micro topics that are covered in an interview. As you know, we cover a lot of topics in any given interview or some of my own sort of reporting, if you will, on some of these issues. So uh, please keep the questions coming. Feel free to send in an email and uh, I will get back to you. One thing I want to say, a number of questions have come in in which I've given this answer and the email didn't work. So just make sure that you're receiving at the same email that you sent it in. And I think that might've been the difficulty. So I look forward to your questions. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that I'm hoping to answer your questions. And I think this world of keto is not just black and white. You know, it's nice that it's simple, but it's not simple for some. I'm really trying to, you know, go down as anybody any of you who have listened to all my podcasts, we started way back when, history and evolution, epilepsy, and so on and so forth. You know, now we're seeing some tremendous overlap in uh, various uh, mental disorders, such as schizophrenia or neurological disorders that are not just epilepsy. And also, just for people in losing weight, it's sometimes pretty complicated for them to engage in keto, and so they need some help. And so that's the whole point of at least that's what I think I'm doing, is exploring the world of why are there other factors? And so in exploring some of those other factors, we've covered addiction, we've covered hormones, we've covered uh, nutritional deficiencies, we've covered 
certain metabolic lab results, and we'll go further. We'll even get to more on genome and aspects. So these are all just contributions that make for an obstacle for some people to engage easily in the ketogenic diet. This is my belief, and these are the things that I've discovered, and I think other people have discovered some of these things, but not ever put them together. So stay listening, send in your questions, and I will definitely get back to you.